0: Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. This is another episode of Queens of Crime at War, a series looking at what the best writers from the golden age of detective fiction did once that period came to an end with the start of the Second World War. Today's subject is a writer who started very young, She did her first piece of paid writing at the age of eight, when an article she wrote appeared in a magazine edited by her aunt. Her first full-length novel was published when she was 19, and dozens more would flow from her pen in the years that followed. She was both prolific and private, preferring her house on the edge of the Essex marshes to the hustle and bustle of London literary life. A young teenager during the First World War The renewed threat of conflict held great terror for her, and the way in which she faced up to that fear shaped the crime fiction she wrote for the rest of her life. She is, of course, Marjorie Allingham. The She Done It pledge drive continues, and we're making great progress towards my goal of adding 100 new members to the She Done It book club by the end of 2021. This podcast would not be possible without the listeners that go above and beyond to support it, and I hope that you'll soon be one of them. Although there are lots of great perks that come with belonging to the book club, like extra episodes of the show, audiobooks read by me, access to the Secret Club forum and community, at the heart of it all is the monthly book discussion. Every month, members vote on a Golden Age detective novel to read together, and then we read it and talk about it in the forum. I also make a special bonus episode about each book, and now that the club has been going for a while, there's a library of over two years worth of these that a new member can dive right into and enjoy. If you sign up today, you'll be in time to enjoy the books we've got coming up in November and December – Murders a Swine by Nap Lombard and Crossed Skies by Carol Karnack. Both of these are books that have been discussed on the podcast in the past, but I'm looking forward to going deeper on them in their own special episodes. Oh, and there's an exclusive offer on Just For The 2021 Pledge Drive, where new and existing members each get a free gift membership to give away to a friend. That means that if you team up with a fellow She Done It fan, you can both effectively join for half the usual annual fee. That offer is only available during the Pledge Drive though, so once we hit 100 new members, it will no longer be available. To see the full benefits of joining the She Done It book club and sign up today, head to shedoneitshow.com slash pledge drive or click the link in the episode description. Now, let's get on with the episode. Marjorie Allingham's life in the latter half of the 1930s was touched by tragedy, even before the war loomed large on the horizon. Her father, Herbert Allingham, died in 1936 after a decline of several months in a nursing home, and she felt his loss extremely keenly. She wrote at the time that one of the two supports of my world was going, and mourned him not just as a family member, but as a literary collaborator too. Herbert had been a journalist and editor, but early on in Marjorie's childhood he had resigned from full-time work on Fleet Street, so that the family could move out of London to Essex. His subsequent career was as a freelance writer of pulp and adventure stories for adults and children, turning out reams and reams of fiction for serialisation. Herbert and Marjorie did not always see eye to eye as she was growing up, but in the 1930s, they corresponded frequently about their work, and she regularly read sections of what she was working on to her father for feedback. At one point, he even gave her a present of several pages of worked-out plot that she could turn into a novel if she wanted. Poignantly, the last entry in his diary in November 1935, before he became too ill to write, was Read Marjorie's Story. A few weeks after Herbert's death, King George V also died, and the country was plunged into mourning. Death seems to be everywhere, Marjorie wrote in her diary. She was, in her own words, horribly miserable. The novel that she wrote during 1936, Dancers in Mourning, didn't suffer as a consequence of her bereavement. When it was published the following year, this theatrical mystery starring her regular sleuth Albert Campion outsold anything Allingham had published to date. And far outstripped the other anticipated crime novel of that year, *Busman's Honeymoon* by Dorothy L. Sayers. *Dancers in Mourning* received her best reviews to date, and resulted in Marjorie being included in *Who's Who* for the first time—a marker of how her prominence as a writer was growing. A couple of years later, in February nineteen thirty-eight, Marjorie Allingham did what she called a literary stocktake she was 33 years old and had been writing professionally to a greater or lesser extent for 17 years. In that time, she had, she calculated, published 8 million words, 15 thrillers and dozens of book reviews, serials and short stories. That's around 470,000 words a year, at a time when most novels came in at well under 100,000. She didn't even include in her total the 125,000 words of the unpublished autobiographical novel she had written in her early 20s. By anyone's definition, this is surely an impressive record for a writer, but crucially, Marjorie looked to her total and despaired. God only knows if it has been worth it, she wrote in her diary at the time. If I'd had 17 children instead, at least my life would have been more exciting, but I should probably still be disconsolate and even more overworked and tired. I'm so slow. Her mental state was undoubtedly influenced by her chronic lack of money. Her husband, Philip Youngman Carter, was a freelance illustrator and as such did not have a steady income. He designed many of Marjorie's own book covers and those of other Golden Age authors, but it wasn't especially well paid work. Any advances or royalties that came in from her books went straight back out to pay off the debts that had racked up while she was writing them. This is important to understand, I think. For all that her detective has a light-hearted, even silly manner at times, Marjorie Allingham really sweated over her writing behind the scenes. She enjoyed her successes, of course, but it frequently made her miserable too. Another crucial development in her writing life came in 1938, with the next Campion novel, The Fashion in Shrouds. Her editor in America, Malcolm Johnson, queried some aspects of the plot, but she stood firm, Whereas in the past, a lack of confidence and the need for money had made her entirely flexible with her stories, by the late 1930s, Marjorie Allingham was pushing back against his attempts to keep her within the restrictions of what she considered the Collins Crime Club mould. Malcolm can't cure me, I'm doing it on purpose, she wrote in a letter to a friend. This book also solicited one of her most treasured reviews from Torquemada in The Observer. To Albert Campion has fallen the honour of being the first detective to figure in a story which is by any standard a distinguished novel, it read. Talkmada was the pseudonym of Edward Powis Mathers, an influential crossword setter who also reviewed detective fiction between 1934 and 1939. Marjorie Allingham had struggled a little throughout the 1930s with where her novels should sit genre-wise. She rarely went down the route of the fully fair play puzzle who done it. And instead, put Campion into plots that ranged between thriller, noir, comedy of manners, and occasionally horror. Later in her life, Marjorie would refer to her books as folk literature, and that seems as apt a description as any. Her genre crossing habits make her novels interesting and highly readable today, but at the height of the golden age of detective fiction, it meant that her publishers didn't quite know what to do with them. Sometimes they appeared on the crime list, and other times not and the marketing plans that worked so well with straight whodunits didn't quite do Campion's adventures justice. To have a prominent reviewer praise her attempt to bring her detective out of the classic whodunit and into a freer kind of novel was a great vindication to her. Although she famously regarded the mystery novel as a box with four sides, a killing, a mystery, an inquiry and a conclusion with an element of satisfaction in it, by the end of the 1930s, Allingham, like Dorothy L. Sayers, was becoming interested in what else the detective novel could do, beyond the format that had remained more or less set during the Golden Age. Marjorie Allingham had been ten when the First World War started. She spent most of it at boarding school in Colchester, experiencing blackouts, food shortages and separation from her loved ones. Her parents gave up their lease on her childhood home in Essex and in 1917 moved back to London in the hope that her father could earn more money by being closer to Fleet Street again. The so-called East Coast threat still loomed large in the young Marjorie's mind, though. As the part of England closest to the European continent, it was widely understood that it was the counties of Kent, Essex and the East Anglia area that would bear the brunt of a hostile invasion if and when it came. A family friend, Dr. Salter, wrote in his diary about how he one day observed five or six German submarines hovering at the mouth of their local river, the Blackwater. The invasion was constantly imminent and Zeppelin bombs fell nearby. Marjorie made her own childish plans for how she would resist if the enemy soldiers marched into the village. She was going to climb up into her secret hiding place in a tree that hung over the garden wall and drop a rock on their heads. Eventually, The Allinghams sent their children away from the danger, to stay with their Aunt Maud in London. Marjorie's fears of seeing her baby sister bayoneted receded somewhat as a result. Still, once it became clear that war in Europe was looming once more, it was to these old thought patterns that Marjorie Allingham returned. War meant death to me, a soldier galloping up on a fat white horse to kiss my tearful nurse goodbye under the chestnut trees, and then death she wrote in her diary in the late 1930s of what had happened in her childhood. In 1935, she and her husband Philip, or Pip as he was known, had stretched their finances to Breaking Point and bought Dr Salter's old house in Tolstant Darcy, an Essex village just a few miles from where she'd grown up in Leia Breton. She was once again right in the path of potential invasion, on the edge of the Essex marshes where it was assumed Hitler's army would make landfall on their way into Britain. This time, though, there was no question of evacuation. Marjorie and Pip were very involved in the life of their small village. They weren't going to abandon it now. Pip chaired a meeting of the new Air Raid Precaution Committee in the village hall. Marjorie got involved with the plans to host children evacuated from London, and wrote an impassioned letter for publication in the press about how the people fleeing the towns should be treated by their rural hosts as fellow humans in need, not as an inconvenience foisted on farms and villages by the government. Civil defence plans were put in place, and the Allinghams' house became the headquarters for the local area. Their dining room was given over to it, and everyone seems to have very enthusiastically papered the place with maps and installed fire buckets everywhere. Essex is a low, flat county, and the village was near the coast. On still days, they could hear the guns booming across the channel. The so called parachute menace, which left many British people convinced that disguised Nazi operatives could be falling from the sky any minute, was a constant source of alarm. Despite all of this, Marjorie later described her mood during this time as disgustingly exuberant, as long as she was able to be out doing practical things that helped people. She even described the war as her salvation and said that she had not felt so enthusiastic or glad to be alive since she was 16. Pip, too, was eager for action, and dissatisfied with the lack of invasion for his local civil defence force to repel, so he joined up properly, going into the Royal Army Service Corps. Carving out the time to sit alone at her desk trying to write crime fiction while all of this was going on was difficult for Marjorie. She had nothing against what was at that time being called, more generally, the literature of escape with capital letters. And at one point she said that a few hours' escape into another, less personal world is not to be sneered at. But she still found it hard to settle to steady work on her next Campion novel, Traitor's Purse. Rumours of invasion came regularly. Sometimes it was to the south in Kent, at other times further up the east coast. It all turned out to be nothing, but in the moment, each instance had to be taken seriously. It seemed highly plausible that Hitler would try to invade Britain, just as he had Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands and France. Fishermen in Marjorie's village took their boats across the North Sea and the Channel to help evacuate civilians and soldiers. It was an odd life, she would reflect later. I was always hoping that the end of one thriller would not overtake me before I had finished the other. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that. And how a young filipino woman named josefina guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of world war ii i'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking as i love puzzles and to me it often feels like the real life counterpart to solving a mystery i loved the episode called the unbreakable navajo code about a group of native american soldiers who devised a code for the allies use and i also really enjoyed the one about emily Anderson an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Marjorie Allingham published only two crime novels during the Second World War. The first, Traitor's Purse, was incubated in those uneasy early months when everyone in her orbit feared that Nazi boots would soon be on Essex soil. For Allingham, There seems to have been no question in her mind as to whether the war would make an appearance in her fiction. Other writers, like Christie, might choose to produce mostly literature of escape, but it was not for her. The war was consuming all of her attention, from the practical work she was doing in the village to the political news that flowed into the house from friends and family elsewhere. There was just no space in her mind for anything else. Traitor's Purse is an unsettling, disorientating book. Albert Campion, the assured but slightly ridiculous gentleman sleuth of Allingham's 1920s and 1930s novels, wakes up in a rural hospital in the early days of the war with no knowledge of who he is or how he got there. He does, however, have an overpowering sense of purpose. There is something vitally important that he must do. He just can't remember what it is, but it's somehow connected to the number 15. From overheard conversations and things other people say to him, he gradually begins to piece together his mission. But the effect of his amnesia is to entirely destabilize the comforting certainties of the Golden Age who done it. The detective who doesn't even know his own name is hardly the reassuring, godlike intelligence that used to be common in such books. It's not hard to imagine that readers, when this book was first published in 1941, might have been familiar with a version of what Campion is feeling, of the overwhelming compulsion to do something without really knowing what's going on. The case that Campion is engaged upon also has very strong ties to the early years of the war in Britain, when the fear of Nazi espionage tactics was running high. Marjorie took this national obsession and put it in her novel in the form of a network of enemy Quislings, a word that entered the contemporary vocabulary after Vidkun Quisling, the titular Prime Minister of Norway, during the German occupation of the country. Quisling had quickly come to mean traitor or collaborator with the enemy, and in traitor's purse, Allingham imagined a way in which a secret cabal of such people in Britain might attempt to weaken the country to clear the way for an invasion. In the US, the book had the rather literal title of The Sabotage Murder Mystery, which gets her idea across arguably too bluntly. This novel was mostly well-received, but some reviewers criticised the Quisling plot as far-fetched. Marjorie had the last laugh on that, though. Her biographer Julia thorogood records that about 15 years after the book came out, someone sent Allingham a newspaper cutting about Operation Bernhard, which was a genuine Nazi exercise that aimed to do exactly what she had imagined in the novel and destabilise the British economy by introducing counterfeit currency. Coroner's Pigeon, Marjorie Allingham's only other novel published during the war, is also concerned with life during the conflict. But it reflects how much things have changed since Traitor's Purse was published. Coroner's Pigeon was finished in the spring of 1945, when Britain had been primed to believe that the end of the war was nigh ever since the D-Day landings the previous summer. It opens with Campion in his old flat in central London, home from his mysterious intelligence work abroad for the first time in three years taking a bath. He's enjoying his break from duty, but keeping an eye on the clock so he can be sure to catch the train that will take him to the country where his wife is awaiting him. His peace is disturbed by his old man-servant Lug lugging a body up the stairs and into the flat. Inevitably, the detective instinct proves too powerful and he has to investigate what has happened. But Campion's reluctance to get involved speaks to the weariness created by many years of wartime conditions when it was perhaps best not to go seeking out problems beyond the ones you already had. People have adjusted since the uneasiness reflected in Traitor's Purse. Part of what makes this case difficult for Campion to solve, but interesting for the reader, is all of the little dodges and wheezes that the characters have invented to make life during World War II a little more palatable, or indeed profitable. Perhaps most tellingly of all, The arrival of a body in a flat is not a cause for horror or alarm as it might have been pre-1939. All three of the living characters, who appear in the first few pages of the book, are entirely resigned to the presence of death on the sitting room carpet. The body is an inconvenience that might prevent Campion from catching his train. That's what the title suggests too. Make this the coroner's problem. That's what he's for. most moving and most intimate writing that Marjorie Allingham did about World War II isn't in her fiction at all, however. It's in a volume of non-fiction called The Oaken Heart, which was published in 1941. This strange little book grew out of her correspondence with her American publisher, Malcolm Johnson, who had the idea that she should write at greater length about what life was like in a small English village during the early years of the war. He thought that it might resonate with a lot of readers, which is always a good thing for a book idea, but that it also could help turn the tide of American public opinion towards a desire to join its allies across the Atlantic. He saw it as the sort of book that would make the ordinary person here realise what war means. The project appealed to Marjorie. She had found it hard to settle into writing fiction amid all of the war work going on around her home, and had felt during the writing of Traitor's Purse that spinning mystery stories was not a sufficiently helpful activity for the times. Writing about the war, with the aim of changing American minds about it, felt a lot more urgent and worthwhile. She did find it challenging to write about real people, though, rather than characters of her own invention. Everyone in it is alive and living on my doorstep, she lamented, partway through the process. Her biographer Julia thorogood commented that reading The Oaken Heart is like hearing only one side of a conversation. And that feels to me like an accurate representation of the book. It grew out of letters that Allingham wrote, and it still feels a little like she's expecting a reply that never comes. But her descriptions of English village life in 1940 are finely drawn and compelling. She builds a subtle picture of a community drawing together in the face of the threat, but one that still has all of its usual points of friction and humour her own village of Tolstant-Darcy, becomes Auburn, but otherwise very little is changed, not even people's names. This line from a chapter about the early warnings of potential poison gas attacks is typical of her tone throughout. In Auburn, we don't care for drama much. Certain of our good ladies have a flair for it, and generations of them providing over illnesses and accidents have brought the whole thing into disrepute. So it happened that when real drama appeared, It shocked and irritated us before it stimulated us. Above all, what comes through in this book is Allingham's abiding love of her home and of the countryside. Even allowing for a certain level of exaggeration, designed to play upon the heartstrings of American readers, it's there. Can we stand ten years of this war? I think we could in Auburn, she writes towards the end of the book. Surrounded by these people, she seems to say, I can do anything. This is a very different Marjorie Allingham, who sounds sure of herself and her place in the world. She's a far cry from the underconfident writer of 1938, who thought that having written 8 million words in 17 years was a poor show. The Oaken Heart was Allingham's biggest commercial success to date, although not in the way that anyone involved in it had expected. In America, which was intended to be its primary audience, The book struggled to find many readers at all when it came out in September 1941, but in Britain it flew off the shelves, selling 13,000 copies in the first two months, which was remarkably good for wartime conditions. For comparison, the first print run of Traitor's Purse earlier the same year had been 5,000, and going further back, the first three Marjorie Allingham novels that came out in 1929, 1930 and 1931 had initially sold about 1,000 copies each. Pip later wrote home to his wife from his military service in the Middle East that people there kept coming up to him to ask if he was really the PYC in the Oaken Heart, and then being delighted when he confirmed that he was, indeed, that Philip Youngman Carter. The invasion that Marjorie and her neighbours dreaded never did come to pass. The tranquil, desolate stretches of the Essex marshes around Toulshunt Darcy remained empty of enemy soldiers. Nothing was ever the same again, though, Allingham's happy household of bright young writers didn't reform or go back to normal after the war, and Marjorie lived a much more solitary life post-1945. The events that she documents in the Oaken Heart didn't just change the English countryside forever. They changed Marjorie Allingham, too. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.